Hi, my name is Karen Thorson, and I am a producer on The Wire, and this is an episode from our fourth season of the series. And I'm with an actor and an editor from the episode. Hi, I'm Kate Sanford. I'm uh, the editor of this episode and also been a series editor on the show since season one. And I'm Jim True Frost. I play Prez since the beginning of the show. Originally Detective Prez Belusky, and as you've seen this season, I'm Mr. Presbo, a teacher at Edward Tillman. Edward Tillman Middle. Bye-bye. Showtime. Right now we're looking at Omar. Nigga, turn. Jamie Hector, who plays um, Marlo. One day soon, I'm walking out with a rose here. Where you been going to school? The director of this episode is Jim McKay, who I really enjoyed working with. And um, there was a lot of footage shot for this particular sequence. And um, we wanted to cut it so that, as you saw, we'd stay in close pretty much the whole time and then reveal at the end of the game the wide shot and see where everybody is. But we really tried to keep it kind of intimate and a little bit suspenseful because, you know, Marlowe can be such a, a menacing character. He wanted to really have a little suspense about how he was going to react to getting beat at the card game. Yeah, and he does get beat. It's it's one of his first lessons if if you want to groove on a theme of education and learning. He's slowly learning a couple of things. It doesn't mean that he accepts the outcome because he's not very adaptable to change or to losing. And he's still a kid. That's the other thing about these drug guys is that the youth has passed them by and they still have a lot of kid in them even though they've got incredible responsibilities and life or death issues that they face oh, every day. You think I dream of coming to work up so that's what the lollipop sort of tells me. Tell all my friends what a good job I got. I'm working to support a family, man. Pretend I ain't talking to you. And here's someone who challenges Marlowe and actually tries to give him a little bit of advice and wisdom about what it is to be a responsible man in this world. I don't. I'm here. Look, I told you I wasn't stepping to. I ain't disrespecting you, son. You want it to be one way. What? This was a great scene to edit also, and Jim and I worked a lot on this performance in um, trying to make sure that the security guard was expressing himself, but that he wasn't stepping over the line. And as the episode goes on, you'll see what happens to this guy who does challenge Marlowe's authority. When you say he's not stepping over the line, you mean so that the scene would be unbelievable if it looks like if you use a piece of the acting performance mm -hmm. where the guy's really blowing it out, mm -hmm. then the viewer might say, hey, why doesn't Marlo just right, exactly. respond? Right, exactly. It's really interesting to hear you use the word, you worked on the performance. You say you and Jim worked on the performance. Right. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of the lessons we actors learn over and over again is that what the final result 
shows is that the acting is mediated by so many elements, you know, the camera work and the editing, and that no matter what choices you think you're making as an actor, as a scene's going on or proceeding, or as you go take after take, trying different things, there may be a whole other <laughs> performance in quotes that's going to uh, make it to the screen. Right. I mean, I don't mean to take anything away from the um, authenticity or, or the uh, specificity of the performance, because we have so much respect for the actors on this show. But we do get in sometimes and shape it in terms of pace and in terms of the nuance sure. of things. Yeah. Being with the education theme and a focus on kids... The theme song is performed by a young kids choral group called Domage, and I'm sure somebody else has mentioned that, but sort of a new departure and with fun music to work with and putting this scenario together that we call the main titles. So my character gets the quote at the top of the show, and it's great seeing it come right after that last clip that's at the end of the opening credits each week, which is the kids entering the schoolroom. Here's some of the kids who are my students in my math class in one of their other places of learning. And they're recapping the slashing uh, from the previous show. This is another area where we work a lot on performance, not necessarily different performances, but just on keeping the pace um, really snappy. And we want to, um, something we started in episode one, which I also cut, David really wanted these kids to almost just be interrupting each other the way normal teenagers do. Boy, you cat-eating motherfuckers. Who want him some boy, you cats? Huh? I've heard that's how she lived. Nigga, you been bored. Latisha live up in one of them group homes off Edmonds. In them places? They're still kids. They still have fear and respect. Uh, poor Randy's obsessed about group homes hey, and having to return to one. Naaman's a little more flip and fun-loving. Oh, if the boy not coming, you might as well let me and Michael go on the ring. Ain't none of y'all seen Spider today. How in the hell he gonna fight next week if he don't show up to train? I tell you what. Till the boy shows up for his lesson, you can lace him up and step on the mat one time. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not him. Me. Oh. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show you as gently as I can how much you don't know. All right? This scene actually was shot in two parts, so the part we just saw is kind of scripted as as one scene, and then this section here where the deacon walks in and talks to Cuddy was shot as a separate scene a little bit later, and a lot of what we do is additional recording so that you can hear the voices of the kids going on in the background. All of this was recorded, supervised by Karen, and added later, which we do a lot. Cody's uh, adjusting to his new environment. He's a teacher of a different kind, like Jim is a teacher in the school. But he's also learning how to integrate back into a life of a citizen of earning, earning money and not relying on the drug trade to propel him. Who's winning? No one wins. 
once I just lose this more slowly. Why don't we get out of the house? Take a walk. How did you like your second wife, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> you may have heard in uh, other commentaries, Karen's question refers to the actress here who is not the actress who played my wife in the first appearance of Prez's wife, who's uh, Valchek's daughter, uh, through an accident of actor availability, I presume. I think so. Yeah. That actress uh, was just seen sort of in a group scene and didn't have any dialogue, so it's not something a lot of viewers probably noticed. But that's unique. I think that's the one and only instance where we haven't been able to carry through relationships that have been established. Which is astonishing, given the scope of the show and then the happens. size of the cast. It does happen. It's surprising it doesn't happen more. Yeah, that's just quick like that. So here's the rook coming to her new environment, and she's going to learn the ropes. My humble abode, the board, and over here, this is your desk. The easy way and the hard way. It's clean. You'll fix that. A clean desk is a sign of a sick mind. Homicide. Damn. I don't know where your chair went. Make that your first case. And put that down, will you? You live here now. Ooh, look. Actual police work. <laughs> Any of these? Either one. Right there. Just put it to Fruit's head. And the next thing, Fruit on the ground flopping and his girl all screaming. And this pink shit coming out the side of his head. The bunk. <laughs> Working weekends. The man's dedicated. I'm going to partner you with Crutchfield to get started. You won't catch anything as a primary for the first few months. Crutchfield's a character that first started out as an ADR line of uh, Crutchfield, get the phone, and eventually he evolved into a real person that we cast and, and had <laughs> real lines. So a little bit of a interesting uh, origin of a character. Last there. Uh, Bill Delaney's character, Landsman, also has an interesting origin. And these scenes in Homicide always remind me of David's book, Homicide, which documented his work over the course of a year with the uh, Homicide Department in Baltimore. And Landsman's dialogue especially always reminds me of the vivid scenes and dialogue that uh, David records in that book. Get on top of that shit before you catch a case. Chair or no chair. Isn't Landsman himself on the show? Jay now? Landsman is in the show as Lieutenant Mello. You see him at roll call sometimes. Yeah. Addressing the officers. The hell is a methane probe? See, here comes the beginning of the fraternal hazing for Greg's yes, being the lower guy on the rung. And. It's the simplest and most uh, base kind of humor, but <laughs> it's it's a very funny scene. The prank call. She's getting schooled. This is Detective Gray. And and there was also a choice made back when uh, she was getting the the message out of the box. There were other performances where you could see Landsman and Freeman kind of smirking to each other and. We felt like that might give it away too much and went with a straightforward. So hopefully, by the time you get to the end of the scene, you've also been fooled. Hey, Jim, you were uh, in the police force, your character. What is a methane probe? 
By the way, that shot I, that I just spared the initiation. I was going to say that like, shot that just went like, by, that establishing shot of the rim shop. I think we stole that from another season. This is a great location do. because it just photographs so well. It's stunning and sexy and gives DP a lot of opportunity to be not slick but just kind of fancy and pretty where we're usually in a very gritty this is the way it is kind of kind of scenario hmm. yeah I know you see it you see the big picture probably with niggas today they always see the narrow view it's nice what oh you like that but we still need to discuss the methane probe and we'll find another moment to do that but here Andre's Trying to school Marlowe again, but it's not going to meet with acceptance of perhaps a very good logic or a very good lesson. You don't have to. I find out for you. And this is also the beginning of passing of the ring. Yes. Fingers swelled over the years. Need some help? Yeah, man. You need help? Nah, I got it. I got it. Maybe use some spit. I don't want the man spit. Nah, I got it now. Omar ain't no terrorist. Benga's portrayal of Chris always blows my mind because he, so, he seems sometimes like you're not sure if he's going to give you a massage or blow your head off. <laughs> he's very, he's a very uh, sweet and uh, sensitive person and, and, and when you meet him in person. And he doesn't try to hide that too much as an actor with this character. He sort of lets that complexity be part of the, the character. You know, he doesn't work real hard trying to make him a heavy or a hard ass. some patience. Money too. Here's that beauty I'm shot. This time out. Hundred and a half for the do. A hundred and a half. I take that chicken nose full one day soon. Take super stick too. That's a sore take loser speaking. Elsie, maybe I'll get bored. <laughs> Send you the table. And my point, Colonel Farce, is that your man Norris, he's fucking the dog on this way. I hear it. So this is a top priority case. And Norris knows there's a possibility of a Richard DeAngelis in this uh, scene um, unfortunately died not long after we finished filming in December of that year. So this was his last uh, performance on the wire this this episode. Yeah, he has three scenes in this in this one. This is the first of three. Work it round the clock. Work it till it falls. And I understand we just pumped some fresh blood into homicide. Female took one in the line a few years back. She never worked homicide. That was real humbling for us in the cast. You know, he's such an interesting and kind person who has such a great history in, in the profession. And, and to see him come in when he was really on his, on his last legs, but give it everything he had. The person in his position would have been probably very happy to stay at home and stay comfortable. And he worked so hard to do these these scenes that were pretty simple physically, not a lot of action, but he wasn't well at all. And uh, it was a real testament to his, his dedication, I think. He's a nice guy. Look, think, think, think on it like this. School is work. They're the same thing right now. So you skipping out on school is like not showing up for work. And I done heard, made up, and tested every excuse invented. So I love that. Bubbles has some lines that I want to repeat and remember forever, and that's one of them. I done made up, heard, tried, and tested every excuse ever made, something like that. <laughs> ...to start out a school year, particularly after a three-year hiatus. 
We haven't seen you since you enrolled. Is there a reason you haven't joined us? Look, I know you're reaching out for Shavad. I want to apologize. There's also another, what's also developing here is a, is a fostering, a foster parenting thing, if you will. Uh, um, Bubbles is trying to, to nurture and, and take Sherrod on, and there's, there's some parallels and other themes going on. Um, your character, for example, Jim, has, has that going on. Yeah, I think it happens. You know, I talked a lot to Ed Burns about it, who had so much to do with the, the school storylines, with his uh, drawing from his background. Um, teaching for seven seven years, I think, after he left the police force. And also drawing from my own experience and what I heard from my wife being a teacher. There's so much need in the in the schools and so many needy kids in a school like this that anyone who's in a position of authority sort of has to walk that line of caretaker and mother and father and disciplinarian and teacher all at once. And it's great. I think you identified it really well, that, that's, that Bubbles is a parent there and the principal's a parent and I become a parent when he enters my classroom for about six seconds before he runs off again. There's also an opportunity for us as the audience to be schooled about the bureaucracy of the school system and that's another, that, that scene that just passed is another place where we learn about social promotion which is a really sad and interesting fact. And then there are a couple other facts we're going to see coming up. Mr. Presbelewski, this is Sherrod. He's all yours. Okay. What were you thinking here, Jim? Well, the scene is so well written, you know. It's set up in the earlier scene with me and my wife where I'm... I'm trying to think of a way to talk to the kids about this this event that happened earlier where a, a, one student slashed another student. It was a big upsetting incident and I feel like, well, I better, you know, help them process it, help them talk about it. I think what's clear is, or what I tried to show is that Prez is struggling to process it himself. He does his best to try to show them he's in control, give them an opportunity to talk about it. But he's so off balance that he can't approach them. As you can see, they're already moving on and joking. They're kind of driving the scene in a way. Yeah. With their agenda. Yeah, the first, as Ed said, it's like the whole first year of a teacher's life in a tough school like this. this the kids are in charge. It just takes a really long time to exert control or, or take leadership of a classroom because there's just so much energy, so much confusion. It's about working with the community. The community? Y'all ain't been up in my community in a long time except the whale on people. Yo, Mr. P, you ever been shot? I mean, like... That's enough. I think Jim McKay's aesthetic, the director's aesthetic, is, comes from a very realistic documentary kind of feeling background, and he shot a lot of footage of just the kids, just the kids reacting and doing all kinds of things, and we opened the scene with kids just sort of being kids and doing all their stuff, mm -hmm. and really tried to work a lot of those just tiny moments into the dialogue, and that's why a lot of it plays actually off of you. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. 
No, I saw that a lot in the directors who came into the classroom. Their eyes kind of lit up. You know, it was one of those places where the routine of shooting an episode and moving from location to location was kind of interrupted in a funny way because suddenly there's 25... 12 year olds in one room which is it presents a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities and it kept them on their toes and it also was a lot of fun I think to shoot yeah and you, as you can see the, the classroom's never really quiet it's a busy place there's a lot of chatter and part of it is uh, as Jim was saying there's a difficulty in resting um, authority but even if you get the kid children focused, there's still a constant buzz going on all the time mm-hmm. in the classroom. We moved this scene up, actually. Chris and Snoop leave um, their surveillance and the security guard. We cut right to this. Originally, Randy, which is a scene after this, was before it. And sometimes we just shift things around slightly so that you can just track one story for a little while and then go back to the other one. I love that character, Donut, who he loves to boost cars. He loves to drive cars. And he's about, I don't know, 12 years old. And about four foot two. Was he actually driving? They had we had stunt drivers. I don't know how there are all these things are, are executed, but they're done within all the proper safety confines. So Bodie's just made a transition from Barksdale to Stanfield uh, purely due to muscle. He had no choice. And Snoop and Chris basically said, you know, you're taking our package. And so now we're back to Randy and the school story. And then also moving that scene around helped us track a little bit the Snoop and Chris and uh, Bodie story and then also gave Randy a little more time to get to lunch after escaping from math class. Stand still with him in the middle, and that would be a catastrophe. I just forgotten warm all the shirt today. Mm-hmm. Well, if this isn't your lunch, then where's your hall pants? Why not just write it in crayon? Come on. Deacon says you're a good man. Good enough to swing a mop, I guess. Mop? More like a vacuum cleaner. I get a few fellows like you to help me out every September. You go out on the street, you find these kids, you drag them in. Tootsie Duval, who plays the principal here, not principal, but what is she? She's a school administrator, came from our loop group, and she still does a lot of looping with us in the capacity of uh, background looping. Then you cross them off the list. Each kid, one time, clear the list. Come October... You start on the list again. Job's yours if you want. It pays 12 an hour. Excuse me, hon. Sit. She was great as this character. She did a phenomenal job. I loved working with her in this school scene. She she really was great and brought a lot of authenticity to the scene. I, you know, have this uh, attenuated... Connection with my wife having been a teacher, but but Tootsie's been in Baltimore a long time and has been a teacher herself. 
week and I got walls covered with tags. These schoolroom scenes were something she really had a lot a lot of personal experience in and, and knowledge about and, and she was a lot of fun to work with too and and I think she goes back to um, the corner I think she appears that may be in a role as a Thompson. at a crab shack or something like that Wagstaff's foster mom what you want to call Miss Anna for because you're skipping class running the halls maybe worse she's got a right to know there's a lot going on in this scene because Randy is being pressured to snitch and meanwhile we wanted to work hard to keep Cuddy alive over there by the by the counter, keep him actively listening, but also keep the conversation focused on the two of them. So we go check in with um, Cuddy a couple times, listening and giving Randy the eye. Are you going to snitch? Don't snitch. Well, yeah, and it opens up a whole other theme that's very, very closely examined in The Wire, and that is the role of the informant snitching, who really benefits, who really loses. And a kid like Randy, who just sort of likes to get away with as much as he can on a smile, you know, ends up into some bad situations. And his greatest fear is his home life. It's Miss Anna, he's got a foster mother, he just doesn't want to end up back in a group home. So that's the only thing that really can pull him back as the threat of telling on him and telling his, his foster mom. Because the consequences in his mind are really severe. And this is the weird, unusual beginning of the project. They got a grant to do basically a study on what it would be to separate the stoop kids from the corner kids. It's exactly what it is. The way they describe the experiment move into the classroom and remove the kids that are causing the most disruption and put them in their own classroom, and that way both groups will fare better. That's the intention. And those that want to learn won't be disrupted, and those that want to disrupt can be better disciplined or better instructed to their needs. And as that scene we just watched shows that the the ongoing struggle is not just how to deal with the kids in those two classrooms, but how to deal with a bureaucracy that's so uh, slow to accept ideas of change, even when they're really promising ideas. Back in the scene, we wanted to make sure to show a couple of kids who were really affected by the disruptive nature of name and acting out and falling on the floor and... Not only did Sherrod leave because things were so out of control, but there were a couple of girls who specifically wanted shots of them turning away and trying to ignore the chaos that's going on. Pumping <laughs> <laughs> a radio car like a young Sprite. I'm a little bit proud to know you, Officer McNally. Just a little bit? Well, it ain't like there aren't better things you could be doing. Like what? See, I told you, Lester, the worm has turned for my boy. So I heard they torpedoed your wiretap. Yeah, they sent us a new lieutenant, Marimo from ENT. Marimo, the great character name. Lester and homicide, and now Sidney's is looking to jump at the first good opening. Some major crimes is dead, huh? Yeah, Lester killed it good. This scene was actually shot before months. everything else in the episode due to um, Dominic West's schedule. 13 years, four months. Four months. <laughs> you guys call for backup or what? Yeah. 
We got arrest papers on a murder. The one Curtis Anderson, a.k.a. Lex, he's been on the wing for a couple of weeks, so I don't expect him at his mama's, but you never know. What's the address? 643 Harlem. How about you taking the door with me for old time's sake, Jim? I'll take the back, gents. Oh! Back? Damn, Junior, the worm has turned for you. You know what they say about the man who volunteers to take the back? He buys. Be in no tavern. Tonight at 9, son. I'll throw myself out after one. Shit. Don't believe me, ask Bunk. <laughs> Drinking's another common theme in the <laughs> <laughs> An endless resource of inspiration. Yeah, clear. Yeah, basement too. Clear. I may be wrong, but this may be the first time we've seen McNulty this year. Is that true? Hmm. Nine tonight, McNulty. Be in no tavern. Well, he's uh, refraining from alcohol. He's now in the Western on foot patrol. He's no longer a detective. And uh, we're kind of relearning that in that previous scene. Man. And here's another so, uh, example of the theme you were just talking about, about informing or not informing, and what advantage will it be to the mother this right now. of this boy who's witness. missing? Gives us a murder warrant. And that warrant says that we can come through your door as many times as necessary. I don't know where my son is. And that's probably true. It's like them <laughs> birds of yours. They go out and they fly around the city. They're free to do as they do. End of the day, they come back here. Not really sure completely what the birds represent to the writers, but um, I love the reference here. I love the fact that it's one of the, the slender human moments that we catch of Marlowe, where he clearly cares for the birds. Uh, occasionally, we get to see him smile, but this is really the most human we ever get to see him. And I know there have been other references with pigeons and coops like Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. We, there was such a character. And certainly on the waterfront. It's the side of his character that I think is very special. What I got to give up to get that good dope? Muscle. In episode one, also the kids have some pigeons. Boys right out of East Baltimore. Fuck, I care about East Baltimore. The point. Or the co-op is we stand together. We share this is a great scene. There was a little bit more dialogue than you see here, and just simply for time, sometimes we'll have to go in and weed out a scene just a little bit. There was a little more back and forth where Prop Joe was trying to convince Marlo, and they had a couple more lines back and forth between them, but we felt like this was enough to convey. He's extended an invitation, tried to convince him to join the co-op, and got shut down. African colors. Subtle. Tony Gray is pulling 24% now. You need new colors and a new message, Clarence. You need to rally the base. You want me to start wearing... That opening shot was pretty ingenious with the juxtaposition of the campaign poster and the colonial <laughs> aristocratic... And his, red, his yeah. red coat. Call another game. It's a waste of time, and right now, time is everything. They're going to spit in your eye and endorse Royce. They only waited this long out of respect to Tony Gray. Otherwise, they give it to Royce months ago. 
That's not the point. You go there uninvited and you're only going to piss them off. Am I? Or do I piss them off even more by pretending that they don't exist? That I don't need them? I've door-to-doored every neighborhood in this city. Saying I'm ready to I guess this is sort of another little education project in that they're trying to figure out how to win. And that's what we learn, in, or what, I, what I've learned from The Wire, is that it is, of course, it's not about whether you're a good candidate or a bad candidate. It's all about figuring out a way to win. At least they get to see a begging-ass white man on his knees. Always a feel-good moment for the folks. Yeah, the scenes all through this campaign story for the first part of the season just tell that story over and over again in such canny and funny and scary ways about manipulating the press and manipulating the public. Yes, Charles? Yeah, they're putting halfway house at the end of my block, addicts and such. Not if I have anything. This politician, Unetta Perkins, it's the first time I think we've ever seen her. She's always referred to, she's never at the meeting. Um, in previous episodes. That's right. Isn't she set up as the one who um, Daniel's wife is uh, running against? Yes. yes. Right. And there, this is the, this is a debate a city. I think it's a sparsely attended city council kind of a debate. Have to go someplace, though not in white neighborhoods. But they are running against one another. Those two. Ma'am. And in fact, Watkins right now figures out the inconsistency where Royce has both of them on his ticket, depending upon what neighborhood he's in. Right. And so he sees there he himself is not there. Right. What's the point? Eventually we all got Annie up. And here's another card game, but this is one that you have to lose. Um, <laughs> the mayor has to win. And uh, the fat cats are feeding what they call as walk-around money. Maybe we got us some more this time. I wouldn't mind if he wasn't so fucking ugly with it. A two-perry bundle right in the Rogers trip nines. I folded on a flush. Full boat four hands ago. It's immoral what it is. <laughs> Don't you teach cards in your classroom or numbers, dice, right? Probability? Yeah. Yeah, in my journey of learning how to teach at a level that that might actually speak to the kids, I experiment. Well, they do love those games. You lost it, son. All the way up till uh, the end. with shame Elvis and Tupac both. My son's dead in both of them. She's just too scared to say so. That shit wasn't there the first time I talked to her. I just seen it. Uh-huh. You being a detective and all. Mm-hmm. 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 Hey, look. She got a friend. She too young for you, boy. Young? Yeah, they get younger, William. Skinnier, too. We don't. Younger than skinnier. It is, Jimmy. That's just the nature thing. Age is age. Fat is fat. Uh-huh. Nature is nature. Pitiful. Pretty less. Nature don't care. Nature just is. Well, they're together and they're talking, but they're not speaking to each other. They're each in their own mindset of what's important at the moment. It actually has a nice level of comedy, too. Bet they probe for Mr. Lyon. So then where are my bodies? 
Here I am over here on the one hand without a body in six months, and here you are looking for a suspect who's most likely dead, and most likely for dropping one of Marcos. And again, if he's dead, where's that body? You know what the plural of pussy is? Pussy. Jimmy told me that. Where's he putting the bodies, Bob? Huh? There are a lot of Latin <laughs> references in the wire. <laughs> Highbrow. Why is that? Did it come from David's um, school training or anything? Maybe. I don't know, but maybe it has to do with uh, words and where they come from and mm-hmm. semantic. Mm-hmm. Here we also discover that Jimmy is not coming to drink with them. Yeah. Jimmy! It's hard to believe, but he really isn't there. And Bunk's having a little withdrawal from that. (laughs) Every now and then we we make little references to other television programs. Just so they can spring out that shit power every day. Family comedies. Other police procedurals. Yeah, we're gonna see. You hung over? Here's another one coming up. Just In fact, you, look like shit. you know what you need at a crime scene? Rubber gloves. Soft eyes. Like I'm supposed to cry and shit? You got soft eyes, you can see the whole thing. You got hard eyes, you stand at the same tree, missing the forest. I think the old Prez would have enjoyed the hazing process. Maybe. Well, when I played the first couple seasons, Prez didn't have much of a sense of humor. He was kind of overwhelmed. In fact, there was this establishing event that happened before the show started where he shot up his car because he was so furious about the being so vulnerable out on the street and stuff. I think he was kind of mad a lot of the time, and you saw him blowing up sometimes. And, and when he wasn't blowing up, he was getting focused on the case with Lester directing him to do that and stuff. Hey, uh, don't forget the uh, stippling. He was, he, being the subject of hazing was probably too, too raw a subject for him to enjoy. Tater killed me. Oh, is it tight? Because that would hold up a lot better in court. <laughs> 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 Phone number, another hand. <laughs> Standard confidentiality agreement. And this one? Oh, that one indemnifies us should you or any of your staff be injured. That certainly hits home a point where you kind of think of schools as safe environments, not only for adults, but for children. And it's not like that in a lot of inner city schools. Yeah, that little very short scene reminded me of another very short scene, which was after the, uh, maybe later in this episode, after the stabbing, there's a EMT or a paramedic in the school office saying that the 
student wasn't positive, HIV positive. So yeah, there are these concerns of violence and disease in the air that are just in the air. They're saying you're this year's Band-Aid. Is that how you feel? Let's hope for more than that. This year's Splint. Hey, Miss Sampson. Yo, he police. Kids know, somehow. Seems benign. And I got the sense North Avenue might give us some latitude, if not support. You think so? Maybe some... This was a scene that Jim and I worked on for a long time, too. I think it was originally shot to have a lot of point of views, where Cuddy is looking at the kids as she's talking. And um, as it evolved, we changed it to a little bit simpler so that we see these kids going by, but we hear her giving this explanation of Monday to Friday. And then immediately after this, we cut to Colvin touring the school on his own and use some of those POV shots in that sequence instead. They're feeling that weekend coming. Friday is bad again. This is where I leave you. Oh, your class. Language arts, huh? Yes. Anyway, you should see it without me. They behave differently when I'm around. No doubt. This is something that was originally part of the first tour. No, it's not the number of days you've been suspended. It's not the number of years you'll spend in prison if you don't shape up. It's 50% below average. It's 30%. This method below doesn't seem to help people learn more, I think. <laughs> Very sad. It just also—it just seems that a good teacher is one that connects with children, and it's really nothing more or less than that. They don't have to be any smarter or any better looking or any faster, but it, they have to be able to make a connection. Yeah, Ed talked to me a lot about that, establishing trust and making some kind of a connection. One not a big deal where trust is concerned, and certainly not a big deal where education is concerned, but simply getting through in any way. He'd spend entire days in the classroom, he would tell me, doing some kind of an exercise or a game or something that would, just for a second, allow them to be in the same space doing the same thing. You know what I mean? And that was a huge achievement. One day in September and one day in October. One day? After that, they don't lose the government money. So we done with. Now here's nah, Cuddy nah, getting schooled again in the reality of well, the system. You, All right, which one of y'all still needs your September day? And showing us, a viewer, how incredibly upside down the system is. I never knew that about this, these uh, credits and headcount issues. It just seems so arcane. Reinforces one of those overlapping themes between the police department and the city politics and the schools. And the drug businesses, this sort of um, cheating the system. They show presence at the school administrative meeting saying, oh, I've seen this before. They're gaming the stats. How do we begin? You gonna call a meet? 
Why don't we begin by you respecting my time and getting to it? First of all, I heard you may be under the impression I was somehow involved with the late Mr. Bell and his play against you with Brother Mousson. I was no way involved. Stringer came at me to set up the parlay with you. He used me like he used y'all. These actors are so fantastic. Robert Chu and Michael Williams. And so in terms of editing, our strategy is always just to establish the space, get these two actors together, and get into close-up mm -hmm. as soon as possible so that you can enjoy their performance together. I know of a card game on the west side. High rollers, lots of cash money, boxcar size. You trying to set me up, Joe? You ever known me to be stupid? I'm trying to make things right here with you. How much we talking about? There ain't at least a few hundred K in that room. I wish These guys are always trying to get one over on each other in a weird way. I say again. It's like a vicious yeah. cycle. What are the strings? No strings. Whistle cut then. Quarter of the tea. But David has created wonderful personalities that are very endearing and feel very unique. And he's also allowed the actors themselves to yeah. bring that through. You see it especially, I think, in in Robert Chu. And, you know, Michael, with his own facial scar, just sort of became Omar and helped forge that character. And you must be it's really great. Welcome to Major Crimes. Lieutenant yeah, it's one of my pleasures watching the show. I didn't know a lot of these actors before I did the show, and I still don't know a lot of them because of how many uh, different scenarios there are. For instance, that scene with Omar, and I would never see Omar. I never have any scenes with them. We've now met several times, but going to watch an episode of the show for me is always full of great surprises as an actor watching performances like those. Rip and run. Can you get with that, Sergeant? The Western District way, sir. So here's Karkady's meeting with the ministers that they were talking about in their political group. This is who he's going to make a plea to. This is another example of a scene that was just simply shortened for time and economy. There was quite a lot more written. I don't expect to walk out of this room today with an endorsement from the Interdenominational Ministerial Alliance. I don't. But the point is, I think I can be a better mayor for Baltimore than the present one. I voted for Clarence Royce eight years ago. I voted for him four years after that. I felt there was promise in the man. But now I'm disappointed. What's interesting about this scene and what throws the ministers off a little bit is he's, he's really coming to see them without asking for something. And that's a very unusual scenario. Wherever I go, people want the same things. They need the same things. But they're just not getting them. And it seems to be an effective... I'm not going to ask for your vote now. Move on his part. I think just what you were saying about the kids and the teachers, he just needs to be in the same space connecting with them. So we felt like we could shorten the dialogue a little bit. Thank you. Councilman, thank you for coming. 
it's also a fairly silent environment. Usually we create our environments with just a little bit of life and um, background chatter or street traffic or some sort of natural environment, and that one was very, very cold to try and heighten that experience of going in almost to the enemy camp and saying, you know, I'm not really asking for anything just here. You're the primary on the Braddock case, the dead witness. Norris is back in the rotation. What? You caught your first murder. Kudos. She seems to be the only one that is upset about the fact that the very experienced investigator has been taken off a rather sensitive case. Don't know. The kids be snitching. Partially because it's not a smart move, but from a resolution standpoint, but also I think she's worried about perhaps being set up just one more time, this time by the system. Not in a fun and game situation like the jokes. I ain't gonna tell you again. Give me the remote. Y'all learn something today? And here's another family. I think this is the first time we see Michael's home environment and meet his mother and stepmother and see the depressing environment that he lives in and how he is really a parent to his younger brother. Start with it. But like a lot of mothers, she still asks him, what did you learn in school today? Even though she may not really care or be able to care, beyond being able to care because she's in a drug state. Good? I know. So it turns out the one girl... She went to something stitches to close up. She's looking at a lot of rehab and maybe more surgery. The muscles in her face don't even move right. How's the class seem? Like it didn't really happen. They're still processing. I know it doesn't seem so, but they are. What about Letitia? What happens to her? Nothing worse than she's already seen. She'll probably go to a juvenile facility, which is only a little worse than her group home. She was in a group home? She grew up in the system. Monday to Friday, angry. Last year, she was suspended twice and then expelled. Chaquan wasn't positive, though, if you're looking for a silver lining and all. Excuse me? She didn't have HIV, in case you were worrying. I love that scene where you realize what the stakes are all about, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's even worse than you could imagine. And it goes on, it's great the way the whole season is scripted with Prez's journey in the classroom. And Ed and David both, I think, made a point of letting it take the whole year. You know, it's just learning over and over again how much, as you say, how much is at stake and, and how much is needed. It's a problem you can either describe quickly or get on top of and solve quickly. Now, I was going to take Justin's spot if his spot ain't been hanging out. And Marcus, I know you got your mother, right? So... Michael, wanna see the fights? You going? Yeah, I'm in. Yeah. Right, come on, get the check, y'all. What's 
fuck is that? Souvenir. What? So this is the result of trying to school Marlowe. Security guard gets his big payback right here. By being put behind the uh, boarded up house. Yeah. This is one of my favorite scenes I've ever gotten to work on. I find this so moving. First to watch Bubbles as a father figure to Sherrod, who's just brushing his teeth and they're getting ready for bed in a little shack. And then to see him looking over and seeing what Sherrod's really up to. Tops calling up the head will be the only thing you can hear. And discovering that Sherrod's illiterate. And it's also interesting because Bubbles does try to mentor Sherrod, and he is able to school him a little bit in the business sense and, and say it's either school or business, and they're both valuable, and you need one for the other, and attendance is important. And clearly these are things that Bubbles probably didn't do himself. The other brilliant thing about creating this scenario is that Bubbles does eventually realize that what I'm asking is do as I say, not as I do. Because Bubbles still is tied to the dope and not really a perfect example. Even though all his intentions are, are there. And that's the brilliant aspect of the writing, to be able to reveal the imperfection. This scene, um, again, starts with um, just various faces and goes around the audience, six or seven little two or three second shots of people. And again, that's really Jim McKay's aesthetic, just trying to choose little bits of reality to begin the sequence. This also feels like it was a real fight and not completely a, uh, I, I don't know the answer to it, but it just has a feel like it was really real as opposed to something that was created for the shoot. I think it was real. Um, the shots of the ring are real. And then I think that there were reaction shots and the dialogue that were shot separately. Full house. Now the episode's kind of bookended with two of Marlowe's poker scenes, and here's a chance to win his money back. But. Enter. Omar. And this is the most exciting element. This is the big action scene of, of the episode. Because uh, for the most part, this episode has been, been about character development and, you know, learning experiences and really setting up the, the different environments and different storylines. Only spenders. I tell you something else. I like that ring, too. And I think those are very difficult shows to write well and to perform well because it's always fun to do a scene like this which is exciting and um, thrilling and then you know the other element of the ring which again I, who knows what it really means but it gets passed around from character to character as we'll see without any surface explanation so that you can take it to mean whatever whatever you wish women in health 
no doubt. Michael, as Omar in this scene, as he does in all of his great sort of uh, bad guy ripoff scenes, walks such a great line, sort of a larger-than-life, almost, you know, cartoon character, and yet he's always totally believable and always uh, very likable. real deal. You keep training, I'm telling you, boy. Has a sort of wry sense of humor about it, but is believable as a, a real thug. And we wanted to end that scene on Marlowe because, as he said, this isn't over. And so we wanted you to see his face and remember, this isn't over. Where is this going to go with these two? And, and he's still burning about it, believe me. As Cuddy's dropping off Justin, we tried to put in a couple shots of Michael getting a little more nervous and a little more nervous until now he and Cuddy are left alone in the car. I'm good from here. And we reveal how, you know, really how skittish Michael is left alone with a grown man. And um, hopefully that gives you some insight into Michael's backstory. Again, it's a mentoring situation that's imperfect that doesn't work that won't work out for, for whatever reason. Which, you know, in The Wire, there seem to be very few happy endings. I love this end music, and I just want to say one more thing, that our brilliant music editor, Blake Lee, wrote this piece, and... Um, we have used the same piece every time to end the show, and we'll hand the episode over from the picture department to sound and music, and Blake will sometimes begin the music on the last frame, cutting to black, and in this case he chose to end it as Michael's walking away, which I think is really, really nice. Thanks for watching um, from Karen Thorson. And I'm Kate Sanford. I'm the editor of this episode. Well, thanks for watching and for listening. I hope we added some insight. I'm Jim True Frost. I play Prez on the show.